Mano Pastor Todd had spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he, he closed the service, but we had talked, I had prepared something else, and he said, you know, if you want to stay in the, the series, it'd be, you know, the grace of God is really inexhaustible, and, uh, and I kind of took it as maybe we should stay in it, and I'll tell you, tell you why, because when I had heard that I would be preaching, I remember thinking, man, I, it'd really be cool to be in that grace series, but it had ended, so I didn't say anything. And then when he brought that up, I was like, okay, here we go. So I was really happy, you know, because that the, gra- the grace of God really inspires me to, to reach out with God, to, to, to go further with God than, than what we're normally accustomed to. You know, the title of the message is Disgrace. But if you would see the graphic, which I don't know that we have it done that way, but the dis is crossed out and it's his on the top. So I don't want you to think we're about to talk about something so disgraceful. <laughs> That wasn't the key. That wasn't the issue. We're going to talk about how disgrace became our grace. So I wanted to start off by saying many times us as Christians are so law minded. We, 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 it's like we put the law on the wall and because we need a target. Either whether we're doing something good, something bad, we need something to aim for. But God has removed that disgrace off of our life. You see, when we look at, at the, the prefix dis, it means to set, to be apart or away. It's a negative connotation. Now, the grace of God is divine empowerment. It has been defined that way throughout the entire series. But it is also defined, if you look in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, For while the law was given through Moses, grace, unearned, undeserved favor, and spiritual blessing, came through Jesus Christ. Now look at a tree. A tree is in the forest and it's it looks like a tree, you know, like like this. My tree. But a tree doesn't sit in the forest and say, "Man, I really got to act like a tree." I mean, fall's coming. I hope I shed my leaves so I don't look, you know, peculiar to the other trees. What what happens is the inner sap of the tree flows throughout the body of the tree. You know, with the right sunshine, the watering and the nutrients, the tree does what it does in its season. In other words, it produces fruit when it's supposed to. And the sap that is healthy sheds the dead leaves when it's supposed to. See, the inward change of the grace of God, when it's flowing in our lives, it will begin to produce fruit and it will begin to knock off the dead things in our lives, like fear, unbelief, bondages of all sorts. Because when we have our faith in Jesus Christ, His grace is flowing, producing what it should be producing. You see, some rains in life we view as a storm, but really it's just God's watering, producing fruit, helping us be in a healthy environment, changing our mind about who God is. I think that's the key. We need to change our mindsets of God. We all believe the scripture. We, we, we believe we're walking in the grace of God. But yet there are many times in our lives secretly when no one's looking that we say, but does that really apply to me? Is, does God really love me? Is this grace really for me? I can say amen at all the right points, but do I really believe it? See, the Bible says that there's, a, there's works of the flesh. But notice he says fruits of the spirit. In other words, when you're in God's grace and you're living in God's empowerment, he is producing the fruit that we are walking in as we obey. You see, we concentrate on good works and bad works, and that's our spiritual barometer. And that's what we measure our relationship with God by. We don't say it, but that's what we do. Let me give you an example of changing your mind about God. Look in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And I want to share this with you because some people still have a pig's pin mentality. Even though they know that they're forgiven, they're ate up with guilt and condemnation. And so I want you to look at this verse. John 16, the the 8th verse through the 11th verse. It says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now listen what it says. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
Now, in context, who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to his 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 brethren that were following him, that had given up all to to serve him, to walk with him. And he and he let's break down this verse, because when you see this, I believe it will change your mind. Now, it says he comes to convict the world of sin. That word sin is singular. It's the sin of unbelief. So the Lord came to convict the world of unbelief. Okay, we know that. He came to the world because we all live in the world. Sometimes the world is talking about the lost. And sometimes it's just a group of people. So he came to convict the world of unbelief, which he did that. But notice what he says here. See, he says, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. That's the unbeliever. Right? Following me? Okay, verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. Who is the you? The believers, the disciples. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict you, or or you could say it this way, convince to reprove or instruct you of your right standing with God. So if you think about it, because we, 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 we always quote this verse in context of sin. And you know the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but how does he convict us of sin? Does he say this? Now, Kelly, you're the righteousness of God in Christ. Why are you doing that? You need to stop that. Is that how the Holy Spirit convicts you? Or does he say, hmm, you call yourself a Christian? You call yourself a Christian. You're absolutely a disgrace to Christianity. Now grovel at God's feet. I'm afraid that's the voice that we are hearing and calling conviction to the believer. And, I, and you know, the Bible says it's very interesting because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So all you have to do is go down the times in the Bible when he talked to sinners and he would gently rebuke them because they already knew that they were unworthy. He already knew that they were lost. And so he would reprove them and bring them up out of that sin. He never castigated them. He never uh, spoke ill of them. He never rebuked them so harshly to where they would cower in shame. But the Pharisees would do that. I said, all I have to say, be careful the voice that you're listening to and be sure it's the Holy Spirit's conviction and not the not Satan's condemnation. Satan hates your right standing with God because you have taken his vacated position. He used to be right with God. He used to walk with God. He used to sing God's praises. But now that position has been vacated and now it has been filled with the child of God because of what Jesus did at Calvary. So Satan knows if he cannot take you to hell, he will make you miserable while you're on this earth. I want you to read a scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not. Some people are sleeping in condemnation. Some people are sleeping thinking, oh, God's mad at me. I had a thought. I had this or that. And I'm not talking about the guy that's camped out in sin. I'm, I'm talking about you're, you're struggling. You're moving beyond it. You're casting it down. You're desiring to be holy before the Lord. There is grace being poured out as God is empowering you. Listen, if you do not believe you are righteous, you will not act righteous. If you do not believe you are loved by your husband or your wife, you will not reciprocate love. The truth is your husband or wife may love you. The truth is you may love your child, but if they don't feel it and don't see it and they don't respond to it, it's not the truth that sets you free. It's the knowledge of the truth that sets you free. It doesn't void the truth, but it doesn't benefit the recipient. If they cannot walk in what they experience. So that's how you look at, at God's grace. He's given you grace. He loves you. But you must receive that and then walk in that. John 8.32. Remember, it says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, come out of the deception that God is tolerating you. Some people think God's just tolerating me. Of course he loves me. He died for the world. No, God loves you with an everlasting love. Now look at the back part of the verse when it says concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So he's dealing with the lost, 
He's dealing with the saved, and he finally puts an a, a end to it and says, and Satan has been judged, meaning that his power has been broken off of your life because Jesus Christ died on Calvary and ascended to the Father. So I brought all of that out to say, if you're in the pig pen, living in a guilty conscience and you've repented, change your mind. Repent. The Bible says repentance is metanoia. Change your mind. See, we only use it in the context of sin. We, we repent of sin and we walk away. But repenting of sin is, is walking away, but walking to God. And you must repent of your thought process about God. You know, we, we, when we look at this story coming up about the prodigal, we always have to look at it in context. You know, today's culture is very telling. A culture is a character in the story. For instance, today, when somebody says, oh, man, that's bad, that means good. When somebody says, man, that's tight, not talking about jeans, it means that's awesome. That's cool. Now, when you tap a screen, it's a compliment or it's a like or it's acceptance. If you were to read a story about a guy who had a thousand friends and you knew nothing about Facebook, you would say, man, this guy is blessed. But in a Facebook culture, it means totally different. So unless you look at the culture in context, you will not fully grasp the picture of the prodigal son. Now, Jesus tells this story to two type of people. The destructive sinner and the guy who tries to keep law. The guy who's self-righteous. Now, when you change your mind about God, it will change your relationship with sin. You won't want to just run to sin because you now have a new relationship with God. Now, Jesus wanted the Pharisees and sinners who, who Jesus is telling this story and he's saying, you're equally lost, but I'm going to speak to both of you. See, the, the Pharisees thought that they were right with God, and the sinners knew that they were not. Look in, in Luke 15, 1, 1 and 2. It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to, to listen to him, and both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eat with them. Now they were saying it emphatically. Like, man, can you believe this guy is eating with sinners? This is ridiculous. It was over and over and persistent. See, eating with sinners me meant that you accepted them when you ate, when you eat in a Middle Eastern culture. So enter in the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes. And they hated redemption. They hated sinners. Their false teaching dominated Israel. Jesus spoke differently to them than he did to sinners and even Roman guards. Jesus would hold the Pharisees up as an example of how not to be. And he rebuked them publicly in his messages. And he warned people to stay away from their deadly influence. Now, Jesus is dealing with the sinner was gentle. He was very firm, but he expected them to walk away from their sin. Don't think that he accepted everything. He, he would tell them that I'm giving you forgiveness because he knew that he would pay the price on Calvary. So 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the strength of sin is in the law. So if somebody's in sin and they feel bad about it, they, 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 they hate the fact that they're in that. If you go and preach law to them, it will just discourage them. But if you give them hope, now you preach the law to someone who thinks that they're already right. Jesus said he came for those that knew that they were sick, not those that thought that they were right. So as we go into the story, I want you to keep in mind that the Pharisees thought they were right with God. They saw that they saw the dead raised. They saw miracle after miracle and they were hard hearted towards God. So pull up a seat and you will either sit next to the Pharisee or the sinner as we go back into time. Now, I want to key in on the father in the story. Jesus never called it the story of the prodigal son. We have titled it that, but it's it's just a story. And it's it's really the fam most famous story ever told by Jesus. The setting is a Middle Eastern peasant community where honor and shame dominate. So I want you to keep that in the forefront of your mind. Honor and shame is everything in a Middle Eastern culture. You remember the young lady that converted from Islam to Christianity, and she said that she could not go home because they would, they would have to kill her, part of honor killings. So keep in mind honor 
and, and honor and lack thereof. Today, we don't, we, 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 I mean, we like honor. We, it's cool if you got it, if not. But if honor is everything in the Middle Eastern community. Now, Jesus events three characters, and they're the most ex- extreme, absurd characters ever created. And you may say, well, how is that? It's just a son, a father, and an older brother. But once you understand the story, you will see what I'm talking about. Now, point number one, a disgraceful request. Luke 15, 11 through 12. He said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of his estate that falls to me. Now, keep in mind, an inheritance grows over a period of time the longer it sits there. But sin wants something now. So when you live your life, keep in mind your inheritance is further down the road. Don't look at everything that you have now. Don't cash it all in for a life of sin. Now, the older brother got a double portion and the younger brother got a third. So if anything, the older brother had the right, if you can say, to ask for this, but he didn't. In the culture of that day, that would be considered rebellion. In Moses in Deuteronomy, he talks about stoning a rebellious child. So in other words, they would have had a rock concert in that young boy's honor. So this type of behavior automatically gave you disownership. So they would even have a, 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 a mock Jewish funeral where they would re- recite a Kaddish, which means it's a verbal reciting of, of the death of this person. Number two, a disgraceful response. The Bible says in Luke 15, 12, and he divided his wealth between them. Now this no doubt outrages the Pharisees. They would have bumped you and said, do you believe that Jesus just said that this father divided his inheritance? It was the utmost shame to give this brat. That's what they would have thought. Their inherit, his inheritance. This would be even more shameful than the request because this is dishonorable. What the young boy was saying is, dad, I wish you were dead so I can have my stuff. And the reality is the older brother should have jumped in and protected the honor, but you don't hear anything about him till later on in the story. But this is a picture of God's grace for the sinner. Number three, a disgraceful life of sin. Luke 15, 13, it says, In not many days the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. There he squandered his estate with loose living. You know, we've all done that. We've squandered everything, threw it all away, and went into a life of sin. A Gentile country was a place that a Jewish person was forbidden to go, and if they did go, they would have to knock the dust off of their feet when they came back to that area. This is a picture of the foolish sinner that throws everything into the wind and and decides to go full speed ahead, totally throwing the grace of God away. Luke 15, 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be in need. Now no doubt a Pharisee just bumped you and said, now it's getting good. Now this part, now there's pure delight in suffering. You know, gossip's no different a couple thousand years than it is now. People just drink that stuff down like water. But consider the devastation of living up having extravagance, and all of a sudden, it's all gone. This is the worst sinner in a horrible circumstance that gets worse because he was found in a famine. A famine is not the Winn-Dixie truck not making it to the store. A famine in those days is is so destructive that they would eat garbage. They would eat humans. They would eat uh, their feet. There's a story of, of uh, a lady who w- was going to eat her own, her, her neighbor's child in the Old Testament. So famines are not what we think today. Famines are absolutely horrible and is sure death. So in their mind, when they heard a famine, they're saying this sinner is in the worst possible predicament he could even think about being in. It needed no explanation. Luke 15, 15. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and they sent him in the field to feed swine. Now, if you've ever been overseas, you've come across people that attach themselves to you and try to sell you stuff. 
And they, and you're like, nah, man, I'm good. And they're like, no, please, please. Look. And they, they start bargaining with you and you're like, no, man, I'm good. And you, you're walking off and they're trying to slip it in your pocket. And it's like, no. So they attach themselves. That's what it means. It means he attached him like glue. This is a picture of sin and desolation that it brings. That, that you're just reaching out. You, you can't find peace at night. You're sleeping. You're tossing. You're turning. The desolation. No food. No friends. No money. Just utter hopelessness and sure death. That's sin. That's what sin does. Now, every one of us have been guilty of self-indulgence and unbridled lust. So instantly in your mind, you can think of how it was when you cash all of your chips in. Go and do things that you really shouldn't have done. Maybe that's just me. But I've grown up in church, heard the gospel, and thought, yeah, but I'm going to do this. Now, the citizen would have given him a job just to get rid of him, but it wouldn't have did any good to pay him because there was no money, no food to buy. So he just gave him a job to get him out of the way. Luke 15, 16. And when he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, no one was giving anything to him. Now, you... Carob pods were leafy husk and eggshells that was mixed in mud that you could not even digest if you tried. It was absolutely disgusting. And the Pharisees would be thinking, ha, now the story is even getting more interesting because this little brat is getting exactly what he deserves. Kind of like the woman that was brought caught in the act of adultery. They were like, ha, I can't wait to put this stone across your face. That's what people feel like when they're so steeped in law and they hate righteousness. Now, number point number four, repentance changes everything. Luke 15, 17, it says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying with hunger. A day laborer would sit around in a market they had no skills whatsoever. Anybody would come by and say, hey, man, you can come do this. I'll pay you this. And they got paid the very lowest of the low wage, and they were willing to do anything. And if they didn't get paid, they did not eat. So the son is saying, that guy, my father, is extra good to. You see, repentance changes. He started to change his mind about God, about the father. Now imagine this scene in your mind. The boy is hunched over in pig slop, probably sitting in his own vomit, looking eye to eye with the pig, and he remembers his merciful father. He, in his disgrace, he remembers his father's grace. See, sometimes we need to look at our circumstances in the eye to assess it and assess who God is. See, circumstances are blessings if they cause you to look to your father. I want you to see that repentance starts by changing, changing your mindset of your father. He didn't start thinking about law. He started thinking about his father's goodness. Now, look at the story of Peter. Remember the story of Peter? And you're like, I don't know which, which story about Peter. But remember when Peter and Jesus met. That Jesus came to Peter and said, Peter, launch your boat out into the deep. Cast your net on the right side. And Peter was like, man, I, we've been fishing all night. I really don't know who you are, but I'm a fisherman. I kind of know how things go. But he said, nevertheless, at your command, I'll go. So he went out into the water. They cast their net on the right-hand side. And they brought up fish. Where it was ripping the nets. Luke 5, 8 says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. Let me ask you this. What came first, a graceful act or repentance? You see, sometimes the grace of God will pull you out of sin, not just beating somebody down over the head. You see, the grace of God produces a self-evaluation of ourselves as well as our circumstance and as well as Jesus. You cannot change what you are not willing to confront in your life. 
So this morning, I want us to understand that repentance is, yes, about leaving and changing our mind about sin, but it's also changing our mind about ourselves and about who God is. I heard one preacher say that if you preach grace, it'll become a license to sin. And then he said, but they're sinning without a license anyway, whether you have a license or not. The grace of God is designed to pull you to God's goodness to leave the pig pen. Now, point number five, repentance produces action, not words, and provokes a graceful response. Look at Luke 15, 18 through 19. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he changed his mind and said, I'm going back to my father. He now. Granted, if you grow up in a Middle Eastern society, you know everything is dominated by law. He knew that he would probably get persecution because remember I told you earlier that honor and shame dominate. And the Pharisees at this point would have salivated saying, oh yeah, he's coming back. But the Pharisees only looked at restitution. In other words, when this boy came back, he would have to spend a lifetime of scorn and in in resentment, and he would, you know, because remember, the Pharisees wrote off tax collectors, wrote off sinners. They said they're out of the reach of God. So for this boy to come back, he would have sat down at the country square. Because I want you to understand, any when we think of this, we think about a house in Avery Island. I like Avery Island. But a house with a porch, and it's just a dirt road. Because that's how we think, little house on the prairie. But in a Middle Eastern culture, it's a very tight-knit community. Everybody knows everybody's business. And this man would have lived in this house, and there would have been people going to and fro, carrying, carrying on conversations in work. And no, no doubt, they would have heard that this boy is coming back, and they would have been like, dude, I'm working early so I can be there when he gets here. But if the boy had any glimmer of hope, it would be a lifetime of restitution, saying that I'm not worthy to be called your son. That's what he said. I'm going to come and I'm just going to be a hired man. At least I will be able to survive. Commentaries say that when he would have got there, according to that culture, that they would have dropped what they were doing, met him at the front gate of the entire area and begin to ridicule him. And then the father would have stayed behind saying, OK, let him get what he deserves. And after a couple of days of that, he would have walked up and said, now kiss my ring. This is the terms. And you will do this for the rest of your life, for the dishonor that you brought among this family. I want you to understand, Jesus Christ is gracious. Law tells you God's mad at you. God hates you. You, if you want to do, if you want to please God, cut yourself. If you want to please God, crawl down the aisle and kiss a, a foot of a statue. If you want God, you got to do this and do that. And what we do is we get so wrapped up in that. We get wrapped up in our performance. And at the end of, of when it's all said and done, we still say, I still feel condemned. And Satan says, cause God hates you. And that's how the majority of Christians that I speak to are living their lives. Thinking they have to grovel at the feet of God to even get them to notice him. Now, if you think about this boy coming in, remember, he, he lays down all claims. He says, I'm not worthy to be your son. I'll work. I'll do whatever you want me to do. That was the mindset. That's true repentance. It makes no claims, no rights. It's a total self-denial. It's taking all that you are and just laying it down and say, God, this is who I am. But look at it. Think of his rehearsal speech. I'm going to say this and I'm going to say this. I don't know. I'm probably going to get hit. I'm probably going to get stoned, but I'm going to go. And as soon as I see my dad, I'm going to throw myself at his feet and say, just hire me, dad. I don't even want to be your son. Just hire me. And Luke 15, 20 says he got up and came to his father. Now, the journey back is totally different than the journey going. The wind at his back, he's just he's just on his way. He got money in his pocket. But this time he's coming back totally heartbroken, totally spent. This is repentance in action. He's coming directly to the father 
despite of any reaction, he leaves the far country behind. He leaves the Pharisaical mindset behind and comes to the feet of his father. Now, if you're sitting next to a Pharisee, he just bumped you and he's like, I can't wait for this part. If you're sitting next to the sinner, they probably have tears in their eyes. And they're starting to get, I'm a prostitute. I'm a harlot. I'm in the far country. I'm spent. Point number six. He took our disgrace and gave us his grace. Luke 15, 20 says, By while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced and kissed him. See, God never has to repent of who you are. God sees you as his child. Slow are the feet of repentance, but quick are the feet of grace. Now, no doubt this is the dagger to the Pharisees. Now, obviously, the father was looking out. And when he seen his son coming, obviously heartbroken, hopeful. This is how God views the most vile sinner imaginable. We don't, we don't think it as being the most vile sinner. We want a murderer or this or that. But in this context, this is the worst of the worst because of honor and shame. Now, notice the father wanted to initiate the reconciliation, because if you see the two parables before, he's talking about the sheep and he's talking about the coins and how he threw a party whenever they, they found it. So the, the, the compassion that the father had was joy when he saw his son and compassion was the desire to alleviate his pain. Now, for him to see this now in this culture, and I know this to be a fact, because when we went to Israel, we went to Jericho, and we were sitting in this town square, and all the men were sitting there smoking their hookahs, and the children and teenagers were running around and playing, and none of them were playing with their kids. Because you don't do that. It's shameful. So when the father was sitting at his house and saw the son in the village square, not, not to mention they would wear long robes, because even in the Middle East today, so they're covered and whatnot. And you cannot show your ankles and you can't show your face. So he would have girded up his loins. Means he would have taken his robe, tied it up. Because it says that he sprinted. It means that he ran with everything that he had. Fueled by compassion. So he took the shame because he's running. In the midst of all of these people that have their stones and their sticks. And all of a sudden you see this teary eyed man running down the street with his ankles showing, running, taking all of the shame. Everybody's looking, not, they're not now, they're not now looking at the, the son. Now they're looking at the father. And that's what Jesus did. He came down and took our shame upon himself. That is the picture that Jesus is painting in this story. Now, believe it or not, they would deem this shameful. Remember, the father gave the son the inheritance, which was shameful. Now he's running. Every time you see the younger son, you see disgrace, but then you see grace. He is taking it upon himself. He took our disgrace and gave us his grace. I'm talking about the grace that heals. The grace that sets the captive free. The grace that breaks all bondages. The grace that pulls you out of the, out of the mud, out of the slop. The grace that crowns you with many crowns. The grace that gives you the ability to stand before a holy God in the presence of all the angels, in the presence of thousands upon multitudes of people. And God can, God, God can look down and just see you. If there was no one else left on this earth, he would have came to Calvary and he would have died just for you. Now, look at this. He runs up to the son, embraces him. The son didn't take a bath. He's full of pig slop. The husk in his mouth, probably still vomit on his clothes. And the father embraces him. This is a picture because Jewish people can't be around pig slop. They can't be around pigs. And they can't be around somebody who is in a pig's pen. But you have the father running, embracing him, holding him tight. This is a picture of Jesus who calls you. And even though you're in sin, he will take you and embrace you. Because his grace will empower you to lay those things down. See, we feel like we got to clean ourselves up. 
before we come to the Lord. And that's not how it works. If that was the case, the cross is pointless. The cross is there for you to see yourselves and to see myself and to see the Lord. And we take all of the shame that we have and we give it and lay it at the feet of Jesus. And all of the righteousness that Jesus walked in that he is, is given to us. This is a picture of this, the display of the most amazing grace. And all of this happened when he changed his mind about his father. Do you think God is mad at you? Listen, God poured out all of his wrath at the cross. Every Jesus drank all every cup of it. Now, does God get disappointed? Obviously. Well, don't you get disappointed when, when your, your son or daughter falls short? Do you assign them to eternal damnation? No, you're there coaching them, encouraging them, moving them along through life. God is for you. Satan tells you that God is against you. Luke 15, 21, and the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Think about this rehearsed speech that he was repeating over and over. And he is interrupted by amazing grace. See, repentance is less about the words and more about the posture of the heart. You see, you can have a fancy speech and an unrepented heart. Or you can have such a broken heart over sin and you can't get the words out. That's repentance. Number seven, grace restores. Luke 15, 22. But the father said to his slave, quickly, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on his feet. And put a ring on his hands and sandals on his feet. Now notice his father cuts him off before the hired servant part. He says, nah, you're my son. You're my, you're my son. I don't want you to be some hired servant. I love you. I've given everything for you. I've been waiting for you. That's God. And don't let anybody tell you differently. He came trusting his father's goodness. He came saying, my, my dad is good. My dad is merciful. If I could just get through this, this angry mob of people, I will be with my father. And I don't care what happens to me as long as I am with him. But the father says, bring out the robe. He's covering him with honor. Bring out the ring. It was a signet ring that he stamped documents. He's saying, I've given you all authority. Bring out the, the, the sandals saying that you're mine. Now, the Pharisees are looking at this story. Many of them have probably already left. Furious at the fact that this is how you're saying God looks at sinners. See, grace is repulsive to the guy who subconsciously thinks he's good. He's like, oh, I do this, I do that. You know, these sinners, these drug dealers and these harlots and all these people, those people need the, this grace you speak of. But once that all washes out, he still has to follow the law of this and that. But Jesus took that upon himself and he lavishes us with grace. But it's not a license. It's the ability to please God because you're in Christ. And that's something that we don't comprehend as Christians because we're looking at ourselves. Luke 15, 23 through 24, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let us eat and be merry for the son of mine was dead. Remember a formal funeral and has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found and they began to be merry. Now, this is the celebration of all celebrations because they killed a fattened calf. The fattened calf was there for the older brother's wedding (laughs) and it fed about 500 people. So look at the extravagance. That the Lord puts into a repentant heart. One sinner who repents. Number eight, when you are not under grace, you will be frustrated with the Lord. Sometimes we shoot our frustrations at God. Luke 15, 25 and 27. Now the older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back 
safe and sound. Now question, why do you think the, old, the, the father didn't run tell the older brother? I mean, if you think about it, because they had no relationship. They had no relationship. Listen, you know you're the older brother when all you do is talk to servants and not the father. So when you think about the grace of God, do you have the relationship with God that you know that when you go to him, you are talking to your father? Or are you talking to some God that you have a mental picture of, but not the heart of? You see, when you go to God, he is your heavenly father. He has bankrupted heaven for our benefit so we can walk in the grace that has been provided for us. God didn't have to do that. He could have struck all of us, opened up the entire world, swallowed us in, closed it up on us, and he would be no less God. He would be fully sustained. He'd be in his in heaven. He could look in his mirror and say, I need nothing because I'm all self-sufficient. But he didn't do that. We fell, and he came down here to fix it and to pull us up and to bring us where he is because he loves us. That's amazing grace. So Jesus is dealing with the resentment of the younger brother by the elder, and now he begins to deal with the older brother's resentment towards the father. Now the Pharisees at this point have instantly picked up that they're the older brother. So the older brother had never had a relationship with the father. The reason we know this because he had no clue of this grace. That the, It's like the father was acting unbecoming. But it's because he didn't know. Remember, he had no clue of grace, which means he had no thought process on how God is. He never, he was serving God, serving his father, but he never changed his mentality of him. See, many people are discouraged with sin because they don't dwell in the grace of God and his goodness so they serve out of obligation to deaden the pain that they feel for messing up. And it produces a hard heart towards God. We start serving out of obligation and we're like, this God is not doing nothing. I'm doing everything, God. And then we begin to frustrate the grace of God because now we think like, well, I'm paying my part. I'm doing something with the grace of God. That's not about the grace of God. Your works are produced by your obedience. And whatever God calls you to do, if he calls you to do this, you go do that. You're not gaining anything with God. The Bible calls it our reasonable service. So when you think about serving God, it's not about the good works versus the bad works. It's about what Jesus did and our ability to now enter into the kingdom and serve with gladness because we know our father. Now, the brother inquired, he kept on inquiring, saying, you know, because in the Greek, it's emphatic, meaning what's going on? What, what's all this? Why, why is there a party? What's going on? Now, think about how big this place must have been because he's way in the back and he, he doesn't hear about about this thing going on. He doesn't he doesn't have any contact. He was probably just finger pointing the other servants, pushing them around, saying, do this, do that. And then when nighttime came, he's like, well, I got to get back. And then he walks in on this. And Luke 15, 28, he says he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. This is a picture. Our father stepped down out of heaven's party, came to where we were, and invited us to come in. This is a picture of what Jesus would do. Now, if you think about that, even the older brother, the Pharisee, the self-righteous, Jesus was still reaching out to him. Remember, he would preach to the Pharisees and the sinners in the same crowd. And he was trying to woo both of them to himself. Luke 15, 29, he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. It's the rich young ruler symbol, uh, mentality. He says, And yet you have never given me a kid um, that I might be merry with my friends. See, when you don't have the right mindset of God's grace, you will always judge people by what you do instead of what Christ did. And you won't focus on the grace of God flowing in your own life because you're looking at what other people have and you start to take the grace of God for granted. You ever heard the old song, count your many blessings, name them one by one? We don't do that. We're counting other people's blessing and seeing our misfortune that we think we have because we're so focused on the bad thing. Now he says, look, 
This was total, total derogatory. Look, man. Look, bruh. I have done this and I've done, done that. The younger brother says, Father, I have sinned. The older brother says, I have not sinned. Look at the two thought processes between them. The older wanted the same thing as the younger. The younger son just had the, the desire to go out and, and ask for it. Luke 15, 30. But when this son of yours, not even his brother, not even my brother, when this son of yours came and devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf. Now, there was no Instagram, Facebook. So the younger brother was not like selfie with the harlot. That didn't happen. But judging someone reveals what's in your own heart. You see, the older brother brought this out because if he had all that money, he might have went spend it on harlots. He said to him, my child, you have always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother's of, brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. This is God's character. And at the end of the story, it just ends abruptly. Now, we know what happens in the future in real life. You know, when I was reading some commentary on this, it really struck me because I started to think, well, what does happen? Evidently, the Pharisees got mad and walked away. They, they were like, man, forget this. But Jesus just ends the story. But if the Pharisees are the older brother, which we would agree with, and if the sinners are the younger brother, which we would agree with. So when the father comes out to entreat the son, the older brother, maybe he had the mindset of someone has to protect the honor of this family. Because remember, when Jesus was being held to, to be crucified, they were saying, crucify him, kill him. Somebody has to protect the honor of Israel. This Messiah is a charlatan. Give us Barabbas. And the Pharisees delivered him up for death. So it's quite possible the older brother walked out with a stick and beat his father to death and says somebody needs to protect the honor of this family. We just don't know how the story ends. But we do know that when Jesus Christ died on Calvary, whether you're a Pharisee or whether you're a sinner, outright sinner, you have now the ability and access to come into the Father's graces. Can we stand? I want to tell you a quick story as we close. There was a story about a, a father and his son, and they had a expensive art collection that, it, that they had had over a period of years. And I'm talking they had Rembrandts and Van Goghs and, and all the most expensive artwork. And the son saw that there was a war going on. And he said, you know what? I'm enlisting because my father enlisted, my grandfather enlisted. So I'm getting and I'm going to serve the country. So they went into, so he went and, and began to serve in the military and he would write his dad. And after a period of about six months, the writing stopped. So his father just began to think, I wonder what happened to my son. Then one day a soldier showed up at his house and said, Hey, I'm so and so. You don't know me, but your son died saving my life. And he told me about your great love for art and your collection. And I'm here to give you a painting that I drew of your son saving me. And the father was obviously heartbroken as he looks at this painting and he says, wow, you captured the essence of all that my son is. Thank you for this prized possession. The, the boy left, the man left. Years later, the father would die. And in his will, he put that he wanted to have an auction, an auction of all of his prized possessions. And as he did that, he put it in his will, he dies. Then later on, months later, the auction happens. The auctioneer brings out the first painting. He says, this is a painting called The Sun. Who wants the son? And everybody began to grumble saying, we don't care about that. That's a cheap painting. Bring out the Van Goghs, the Picassos, the Rembrandts. Bring out the value. And he said, no, I have, this has to be the first piece. It's in the stipulation. 
So a man in the back raised his hand and said, I have $10. I'll take it for $10. And it was the man who painted the picture. And he said, I value that picture more than anything. And I want it back. So he paid $10. And they said, okay, well, anybody else? Does anybody else want to outbid him more than $10? Everybody said, no, we don't care about that painting. Give us the Rembrandts and the Van Goghs. So the boy, the man came up, took the painting. And then the guy said, stop right there, sir. He read the back and he said, I have a stipulation. And it says, whoever gets the son gets the entire collection. I'm here to tell you that when you get the son, you get it all. You get grace. You get mercy. You get power. You get unlimited favor. And all you have to do is receive Christ. It's not easy beliefism. It's like, oh, a mental ascent of who Jesus is. No, it's believing and trusting. It's looking at yourself and looking at him and saying, man, I can never please God, but he pleased God. So I put my faith and trust in all that the son is and you get everything that he is. So you may be here this morning. And I don't want to close the service without giving you an opportunity to receive the son. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want you to slip up your hand if you know nothing about this Jesus I speak of. He is the Savior of the world, and He wants to be your Savior. So I'm going to ask you, if you would say, Kelly, I do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but I want I want to be in relationship with Him. Let me see your hand. I just want to see your hand. Just lift your hand. I see your hand. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Everybody can join in with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I put my faith and my trust in what Jesus did for me at Calvary. I confess that Jesus is Lord and I believe that you have raised him from the dead I am forgiven of all of my sin now give me the power and the grace to walk in your ways in Jesus name Amen Amen now if you're here and you could say I've been in the pig's pen I'm dealing with depression I'm dealing with condemnation. I want to pray for you. Let me see your hand. You're dealing with an identity crisis. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, pray this prayer with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask you to wash my mind, wash my conscience. Help me to see the grace of God that is applied to my life. Empower me. Grace me with your truth and help me to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, I pray and ask, amen, amen. Well, thank you for coming to the service this morning. Praise God. If you want any prayer for anything, we'll be up here to pray for you. If not, y'all have a great afternoon. God bless you.